Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Welcome, Cutrate IT guys, to Geek Salad episode 242, every in-house, outhouse, and doghouse part two, where we are going to discuss the top 10 <laughs> U.S. domestic releases of the year 1993. Uh, I'm Andy. I'm Mike. I'm Joe. I'm Catherine. And joining us once again, man, it's been a minute, hasn't it, Em? Uh, <laughs> we've got our friend Em from the Verbal Diorama <laughs> podcast. How are you? I mean, it's been at least a week since we last spoke. So, um, you know, things have changed massively for me in that seven day period. Um, But but thank you again for having me back to talk about the movies of 1993, specifically the top 10 movies of 1993. Because now we're going to talk about where all the money went. Um, thank you for joining us for last week's episode where we talked about kind of all the rest. And when we, we, we go back and you think about the movies we discussed last week, as compared to the movies we're talking this week, I think the biggest question might be, how did those movies not make more money than some of the movies that we're going to be talking about on this episode? I don't assume I'm wrong on that. What, what, do you, what are your all thoughts on that? No, I agree. Yeah, I don't understand how some of these movies made more than... Yeah, you know, we, we say that, that, we... that, that comes yeah, up every year. They like, probably have just, better marketing. Just looking over this top ten, most of the movies, I would rather watch Adam's Family Value than watch them. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. 100%. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, there's just... Adam's Family Value is such a comfort movie. But yeah. let's start with uh, the top... 10 taking in eight at number 10 taking in 84 million dollars and again we're just doing u.s domestic because this is really before they started really looking at global numbers uh, a movie that our friend steve day says cliffhanger didn't hang on a cliff end on a cliffhanger and that's kind of bullshit and that is <laughs> sylvester solo's cliffhanger they stole 100 million dollars in midair and lost it now, to get it back... Recognize these locations? They'll make one man a hostage. You're not going after him. What choice have I got? And the other, a moving target. Cliffhanger. 
I'm ashamed to admit that I actually spent movie theater money to watch this one. Oh my. Oh yeah. I think this was the movie that like Stallone needed to have a hit of some kind because he'd had a bunch of not hits mm. before this. Yeah. Yeah, how this thing cracked the top ten, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't remember it doing as well as apparently it did. Am any thoughts? Have you seen Cliffhanger? I have, but it's no Super Mario Brothers, let's be honest. So, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I think, I think the thing is, I think, I think this is going to be like a recurrent thing that we, uh, we always kind of come back to is when it comes to most, I'm going to say most of this top 10, um, most of this top 10, I'll be honest, I have not even seen. Because I was out there watching movies like Super Mario Brothers and Adam's <laughs> Family Values and Last Action Hero. So, oh. um, but, you know, Cliffhanger's fine. Like, if if someone said to me, do you want to watch a movie? I wouldn't go, oh, yeah, let's watch Cliffhanger. You know, it's just, it's, it's fine. It's just yeah. fine, you know. I, I think I see why it crapped the, crapped the top ten. Was it? Because the villain was played by John Lithgow. And I uh, think that that is – this was in the era of the early 90s where they really wanted to make John Lithgow be like that psychotic villain. And it – I don't know. I don't feel like that works. Like he's an excellent actor and he could pretty much yeah. pull off anything. Outside but of Buckaroo Banzai, he shouldn't be a yeah. – that's the only good movie or only movie where he played a good villain. He's such a lovely man, and that's the thing, is that, like, you see him in other movies, and he's so lovely in them, and then it's like this, and there was another movie, I don't know if it was Ricochet, I think that might have been the name of the movie, where he he was going up against Denzel Washington, and he was, like, a serial killer. Actually, wait, no, wasn't he a serial killer in Dexter? Yeah, I think uh, so. Maybe? I'd have to double-check with Donna, just... but yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I, one thing that my coworker Eric and I all have talked about, like, is apparently John Lithgow was in the running um, to be the Joker for Batman '89, and both of us think that is an alternative Batman. I would we would love to see because him as the Joker huh. would be interesting as all get out. Huh. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. I could. S- at that time, I probably could have seen it more than I can see it now, 30-plus years later. Yeah. But, yeah, I... So, there's this YouTube channel I watch called uh, Space Ice. And they do, like, these over-the-top... It's got, like, the guy just does this over-the-top trailer voice. And he did Cliffhanger. And it actually is pretty funny. So, check that out if you if you just need to get, like, a like a 10-minute a trailer on a movie with the guy with the voice. <laughs> But I'm assuming we don't have any strong feelings about Cliffhanger, though. And like I said, I paid movie money for it, and that's all I—that's all yeah. I can remember about it. I don't I think, think my, I've my, actually seen it. My lingering question is: How did Demolition Man make less money than this one? Exactly. Because Demolition be Man is a lot. way better Sylvester Stallone movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to number nine, taking in $96, winning the Oscar for Best Picture and Best Director that year. 
and a movie that said uh, that Steve Day says that is a pretty mellow guy, which is why I was actually scared when he turned around and shoot the two kids sitting behind us during Schindler's List who are making commentary. Beavis and Butthead. They left the theater in terror. Demons run when a good man goes to war. <laughs> there were names, names that stood for evil, for madness, for terror. But there were also names that brought hope, that meant courage. Names like Oscar Schindler. Their lives meant nothing until their names meant everything to him. A film by Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List, rated R. Um, man, this is a tough movie to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially right now. Right now. Yeah, with everything that's going on, it's uh, it's a it's a t- I mean, uh, yeah, mm. it, it, yeah. People are apparently cool with Nazis now, so that's like it's kind of tough to talk about that. Um, Mike M, you've both been notoriously quiet, and I don't know if that has to do with the uh, the international lag, M. But thoughts? <laughs> no, no, it's nothing to do with the international lag. Um, so. Schindler's List is one of those movies that I would love to be able to say that I've seen, but I have not seen. And that is purely because I I know that it would really, really upset me. I know Mm. that it would. And I tend to avoid movies that I know will really affect me deeply emotionally um and so i've never seen it and i know it's like when you've got a movie podcast it's like saying you've never seen the shawshank redemption it's like oh you've never seen the shawshank redemption what's wrong with you and schindler's list is one of those like i feel like it's one of those movies you have to see because it is important it's an important movie and i get that and i respect how important as a movie it is but i simply cannot do it it's it's Um, a tough tough watch it is it's hard. I, I, I just can't. It and really, I'm really it, sorry that I can't do it, but no, it's it's okay. No, it's it's, it's, it's understandable. It it's it is. If ever there was a movie that's an endurance test, it's this one. Yeah, I, I would say exactly what M said, but in a much dumber American accent. Um, I, I yeah, I've never seen this movie mainly <laughs> because. I know exactly what it's about, and I know I don't think I can emotionally handle it. it, it I I completely yeah. understand. I I totally understand. This is this yeah. This is definitely a movie that if if you just don't want to affect your mental well being. It's not a great movie just to turn on and, and be like, hey, let's watch Schindler's List tonight. Um there are so many things though that I can commend about the movie that have nothing to do with just how hard it hits. Um it's the kind of movie where, first of all, Spielberg really goes like there are certain times when he goes like full on documentary documentarian into the camp and how he shoots it um ray finds oh my god this is still one of his best performances mm-hmm. and this is really what got him noticed because he's so 
He's he's amazing in it. And uh, I'll be honest, it's a tough call because, you know, I love Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, but this is Liam Neeson's best work ever. He never came close to hitting this the, these highs again. Not in yeah. Taken. Not in Taken. Not, taken. Rob Not in Miami Vice. Even in that scene in Rob Ted Roy, no, where he's I asking think about, no, about the... Uh, what? If you've watched Rob Roy, I think he you'd you'd say differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah he is he's That's excellent in Rob, Rob Roy. Yeah, we, we well, should separate kind of a, his action from his acting yeah. movies. Yeah, I there's just something about this again. Yeah, it's not this isn't the kind of movie that you watch for entertainment, and the fact that it took in ninety six million dollars really says something. First of all, about the power of Spielberg. In general, Spielberg has two movies in the top ten this year, um, and the fact that it is a three-plus-hour movie about the Holocaust that is primarily shot in black and white is just—it's—it's it's incredible. It really is. It, it, yep. it, it again, it's a—it—it it, it speaks to the power of Spielberg that, like you said, he's got two movies in the top ten. One was is you know cinema the the oscar winner and the other one's a summer blockbuster it just yep. it's it's a credit it's a it's a credit to him as an artist yeah yeah and it's you know it, it you know when, when you when you when you have that narrative about steven spielberg it's like it is it almost sounds crazy that he hadn't won an oscar for best director until this yeah and then it all makes sense that this is where he had to win it. He had to win his first here doing this. Yeah. So I think we need to. I think we need to involve more people in the conversation here. So I think we need to move on to number yeah. eight, um, which took in one hundred point seven million dollars, and that is the Pelican Brief. From the best-selling thriller by John Grisham, author of The Firm and The Client. From Alan J. Pakula, director of All the President's Men and Presumed Innocent. Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington. The Supreme Court of the United States are ultimate symbol of law and order. But in a single night, two of its justices will be brutally assassinated. A thousand miles away in New Orleans, a lone law student has pieced together who did the killings and why and created a document that has become known in the corridors of power as the Pelican Brief. Now our friend Steve says there's a lot of big, important, dramatic movies on 1993's Top 10 list. Uh, these days might be coming back after so many years of big action dominance, but I regret nothing. Nobody remembers the Pelican Brief, Mom. And I have to agree with them. I. That was a Julia Roberts one, right? Huh? This is Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. Now, I I have to I have to ask the question of the dumb American here. So, um, M, how big was John Grisham in the the early 90s in the UK? Not really. Like, this was not really. I mean, it's a movie that I've heard of, but uh, I don't think it was a particularly big movie over here. Okay. Okay. Uh, but the books, John, John Grisham like John is, books? well, in, in my mind, uh, well, you know, obviously I was 
what, like one or two years old? I wasn't uh, in 1993. <laughs> but um, yeah, John, John, John Grisham, I don't think has ever really been a thing over here. And no, the thing is, it's really difficult because I am the token Brit on this episode. And I feel like I can't really talk for the whole of the UK. But I'm I'm obviously am talking for the whole of the UK. When I say things like the Sandlot wasn't a big deal, in my mind it wasn't. And exactly the same with the Pelican Brief and the works of John Grisham. I'm sure that there's a lot of fans of his over here, but in my particular realm of possibility in the Midlands, in the UK, um, it, he was just not a thing. Uh, and I have never seen this movie. I know of it because okay. I know it's got Julia Roberts in it. Um and Denzel Washington, but I've never seen it. So I'm pretty useless in this discussion as well, I'm afraid. No, well, I wanted to know, though, first of all, if that is in fact the case, I am so fucking envious of you. Because <laughs> the early 90s, you couldn't go to a bookstore, you couldn't go to an airport or a drugstore and not have a John Grisham novel like just yeah, kind a, of like thrust upon you. Yeah, he's 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 airport bookstore. You know, the kind the, yeah, it's, he's airport bookstore author, which is like you're going to so, see him there and then he went he went through a period of they made movies of his stuff and that was it. He's there with yep. James Patterson. So yeah, I was going to say he's he's, he's he's the 90s version of James Patterson. Yeah. yeah. Or Clive Cussler, right, Mike? Or yeah. you know, and we talked about th- this guy a few episodes ago, Dan Brown. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, he had his moment and then he fucked off and just stayed quiet, uh, which is good because I kind of have a feeling that that's the same thing with John Grisham. Um, Yeah, I I just I've never seen this movie. This book is impossible to get through if you like to read good, thought provoking books. This is not the book for you in that case. I've seen one Grisham movie and it's none of the ones we're talking about. I've seen the client, and that's it. Okay. And it wasn't bad. It was just yeah. You see it, and then you forget it. Denzel had a year, huh? He did have a year, and this is the highest sourcing thing he has that year too, which is crazy to me. He's yeah, he's got this. He's got Philadelphia, and he's got much to do about nothing. He was busy. I forgot he was in Philadelphia. Jesus, the hell's wrong with me? Oh my god. He's Tom Hanks' lawyer. How did you forget that? He's got second billing in it. I know. You know why? Because I'm so enamored with Tom Hanks in that movie that. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Joe, any thoughts on this one? I I never watched it, so. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. None of us have. Yeah. If I saw it, it was in 93 or 94, and I don't remember a thing. Okay. All right, well, let's move, let's move on to number seven then. Uh, $102.3 million in the line of fire. It was one of our nation's darkest moments, and he was there. The only activation who ever lost a president. 30 years later. Do you really have the guts to take a bullet, Frank? The hell is this? He's back. This guy's going to make a try, and I've got to be there. In the line of fire. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. Clint Eastwood. That's not going to happen. In the line of fire. Rated R. That's Clint Eastwood, right? This is yep. Clint Eastwood's follow-up to Unforgiven. Ugh. Which, in my opinion, is still his best movie. Acting or directing? Both. 
I don't know. Some of the Israeli stuff is uh, really good, but it's it's good. But like in terms of just you know coming to grips with like you know he's he's getting older. Um, this movie is good. This movie is is pretty tense. But this movie lives and dies by John Malkovich. Yeah. Ooh. That, oh wait, he didn't direct this one. No, he didn't direct this one. Wolfgang Peterson directed this one. Okay, can I get your nerd horns out for that one? <laughs> nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I barely, I barely remember. I mean, I remember watching. I remember enjoying it, but I think I've only watched like once or twice. The only thing I remember about it is that he plays a Secret Service agent. That's it. Right. He yeah. Was well, he was JF. Sir. He was JFK's. He was on JFK's uh, detail when he got shot. No, oh, well then, yeah. he's not a very good one. That what it's about? Yeah. Well, yeah, no. Well, he, he, it's like one of those. He's coming to grips with it, and it's basically, yeah. It's like it's like he's he suffers PTSD from that. It's affecting yeah, yeah. His, his performance and shit. Em, have you seen this one? Nope, I got nothing. I got nothing ah, on this one. I'm gotcha. afraid, literally. Gotcha. Uh, it's no. <laughs> it's it's pretty. If you're look, if you're in the mood for like a good like action suspense it's really good again you 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 have to love john malkovich in order to really enjoy this movie because the choices that he makes there's this fantastic scene where um clint eastwood's got him like hanging off of a building and he's got his gun he's got his pistol on holster he's pointing at him he's trying to pull him up and malkovich just wraps his mouth around the nozzle of the gun and he can't kill him. It's it. It's really like the the choices that Mal- uh, Malkovich made in it are incredible. But I think we're going to leave it at that. Man, all right, we're already at number six, and yeah, that we, movie we have is not watched many of these. <laughs> I know this is kind of crazy. We should have done this first. I think. Well, it's kind um, of a reflection of the quality of the movies that weren't in the top 10 versus what was in the top we're in the top 10 you know what i'm yeah. gonna no, back to what dave mcclain said uh that i read at the top of the last episode that there was a lot of th- there was a lot of unspectacular boring movies that really brought audiences in and, and um there was so much good stuff that's just it's under the surface that we've already we've already talked about right but let's talk about number six here um, taking in, good lord, $106.6 million in decent proposal. From the producer and the director of Fatal Attraction. Suppose I were to offer you $1 million for one night with your wife. A provocative offer. David, I think you want me to do it. An irresistible seduction. You might enjoy it. Don't bet on it. An indecent proposal. It was just sex, not love, just sex. Robert Redford, Demi Moore, Woody Harrelson. Indecent proposal, rated R. And Steve writes for this one. Literally everyone, everyone would agree that an indecent proposal for the right price. All that awkwardness would disappear next month and you didn't have to pay the mortgage. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this, this movie does not really hold up. Very well. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, first of all, there's not enough suspension of disbelief in the world to make me believe that Demi Moore, like early 90s Demi Moore, would be married to early 90s Woody Harrelson. (laughs) (laughs) 
and and that yeah, like that she wouldn't like think twice, like look at Willie Harrelson, look at Robert Redford, and say, "I'd rather go with Robert Redford." Yeah, seriously. Yeah, she do it. Yeah, do it for she do it for free. Yeah. Well, hell, I'd do it for free. We had this conversation last year about the hand that rocks the cradle. How this is the kind of movie that that takes in a ton of money in a very short period of time because it creates like that weird discussion thing that people can talk about on like daytime talk shows about you know real life and decent proposals and you know what would you mm-hmm. do you know would you do this for a million dollars and then you got people who've got to like you know kind of break it down in the real world and they're all kind of boring about it i watched this movie once and i have no memory of it anybody else yeah, um, I've seen it. <laughs> nope, Never haven't seen it. Uh, yes, Man, we are. So I've I've seen, seen this movie once, but it was probably back. I have, I have seen this, but it was probably back like in the l- mid to late nineties. Actually, no, it would probably be late nineties. Thinking of it, uh-huh. um, and it was j- obviously looking back now. There was pretty much like a boom of uh like erotic dramas you know from the Mm. 80s going into the 90s and this was kind of coming towards the end of that erotic thriller drama thing it was directed by adrian line who's i think known for his erotic movies kind of it's kind of his thing um i mean i i remember i didn't find it like particularly sexy you know bear in mind i was probably like you know a teenager slash uh you know probably shouldn't have been watching it to be honest but um (laughs) it's not something that i would go back to it's not something that i would say oh yeah let's watch indecent proposal like i feel like from memory the way it treats demi moore's character you know it's we're basically talking about a man who sees a beautiful woman and decides I want to sleep with her and I've got all this money. So I'm going to, you know, offer all this money to like sleep with this beautiful woman. And women are basically like property. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not really into that. Like that's not something that particularly that is- holds up very well. Um, and I mean, Demi Moore's a beautiful woman. Robert Redford's a handsome man, but that's kind of it. And then what we had <laughs> Woody Harrelson is and still riding out that last year of Cheers. There's, no, there's yep. nothing. There's nothing wrong with Woody Harrelson, but yeah. um, I, I, I don't understand how this is in the top ten. I don't understand. Like this, to me, this makes no sense. Where is Super Mario Brothers? You know, Super Mario <laughs> Brothers. Uh, what is this six? Uh, and it, it was. It was the. I know that we haven't gone through the whole top 10 yet, but the the, the top 10 of 1993 in the US compared to now, it's so weird. Like the movies yeah. on this list are so weird, you know? Yeah. Right. And weird. to uh, that, I ask anybody, I mean, changed. if we, we talk about this now and we talk about kind of like the cinematic discourse of now, which is, by the way, unbearable. Yeah. Oh, um, God. That. Would I, I'll posit this to any of our friends listening to the show who, who really want to hearken back to the old days of the This Is Cinema era. Do you truly want to go back to this 
where some of the top grossing movies are forgettable legal pot boilers and um, sexy, you know, sexy thrillers that aren't all that sexy. Um, I mean, we're still, by the way, we are still two years away from Showgirls, which is also like you can show me all the tits and ass. And it was the most boring tits and ass I think I've ever seen in a movie in my life. Yeah, how do you? Yeah, it's it, it, it's it, that that movie's a guidebook to how to make softcore porn unappealing. Seriously, seriously, and I was in my mid twenties then. I I could have you know, you, you could yeah. have just taken my money, but no, you refused to. You chose oh, the way of violence. They they you chose, just, you chose the path of pain. I I better remember the way they summed it up on The Simpsons where. Uh, uh, Homer and Marge went to see it, and it's like you know there was all the sexy things that Homer could enjoy, but there was also like this relationship that I could enjoy, and it's like <laughs> making fun of yeah, yeah, that's totally what they were going for, and that's totally what actually happened, and it's not yeah, exactly. The, but the we'll have two years to talk that about that one. That's true. That's true. So I if, drop. if you haven't watched, if you haven't watched uh, Showgirls, then you had to hold off for another two years. Good so anyway, you. we're at the midway point here. Uh, taking in $126.6 million, Sleepless in Seattle. We're talking to Sleepless in Seattle. You call the radio station? He's in Seattle. He phones in one of those radio call-in shows. He tells them that his dad needs a new wife. She's in Baltimore. I want to meet you. Where is Seattle? Right. Where is Baltimore? Is this crazy? Ah, it's right there! What if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Sleepless in Seattle. Now, Steve says, my girlfriend broke up with me because I wouldn't take her to see Sleepless in Seattle. I don't know why I decided. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to die on that hill, but now she's married to a guy with tattoos on his neck. So it probably wasn't going to work out anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I mean, to be fair, when it first came out, I was like, you know, I was what? Like 13 at the time. So I was like, three. No. I was You're like, 15. no, I don't want to. Maybe I was 15. I don't know. But. Then I I did bother I did just get around and watching it like several years later, and I was like, this second movie is actually really good. I agree. I agree that it is a good movie. I will say I think that When Harry Met Sally is a better movie. I know it doesn't feature either of these two. No, it features Meg Ryan. What am I talking about? Yeah, but Ryan, it's yeah. you know it's just in terms of the Nora Ephron rom com. The oeuvre, if you will, yes. It when Harry Met Sally just hits the spots that I love, but I do like Sleepless in Seattle. I feel like it's a, it, it definitely it's it's got a lot of classic elements to it. Doesn't feel super super dated, um, mm-hmm. you know. Apart from the fact that no cell phones, but you know, what, what are your all thoughts on it? I don't know. It, to, to me, it always it always felt because when Harry Met Sally set the template. Mm-hmm. I always felt like Sleepless in Seattle was almost like a dime store version of it. I I think this is the best uh, best of the uh, Meg Ryan Tom Hanks co- collaborations. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I think you're right. No, but I no, mean, no, no. Joe versus oh boy, Volcano. Oh I knew you'd be going for Joe versus Volcano. Oh yeah, that's true. I knew it. I still Uh-oh. prefer this one though. Mike, you chose poorly. No, I prefer this one to Joe versus the Volcano. I, I like Joe versus the Volcano, but I prefer this one. Joe versus the Volcano <laughs> is too weird. Or, uh, but 
M, thoughts on Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm very typically British, so I do like to wait. We like to wait and queue in Britain, so I like to wait for everyone and then I'll say my piece. Um, <laughs> ah. So I, I really, I really love this movie. Uh, I, I, I agree with you, Andy. It's no when Harry met Sally, or Super Mario Brothers for that matter. But <laughs> um, I think it's a very sweet, lovely movie. I think that. Um, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are both pretty perfectly cast in this movie as well. And it's just very lovely, very sweet movie. It was, I certainly remember it being huge over here. Um, you know, it was one of those that everyone, like my, my pretty sure my parents watched this movie. You know, it was just, mm-hmm. just a really sweet, lovely rom-com. And sometimes... The simplest kind of, you know, movies like rom-coms and stuff, sometimes they just work. And I think, you know, when you've got Nora Ephron and Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, although I will advocate for Joe versus the Volcano because I think it's wonderful. Genuinely, I love that movie. Um, But there is something about Sleepless in Seattle that I think it transcends time. You know, you could watch this. You could have watched it 30 years ago. You could watch it now. And I think it's still works i think it still holds up and i think i just think it's really sweet and lovely um and the chemistry yeah the chemistry has always been really good between them so um right. i mean i definitely prefer this over uh you've got mail because i think you've got mail doesn't quite work so well so um yeah it's a sweet movie again it's like yeah. okay this was the fifth highest grossing movie like, what's going on you wouldn't get a rom-com it- as the fifth highest grossing movie now like no does it make any sense no. but but looking at the yeah, again it's a, accepting it's a accepting schindler's list for the, uh, the the reason we said it's kind of astounding that it did make the top 10 this is the first movie that we've talked about that feels like it belongs on this list yeah hmm. and you, you yeah, know what? yeah absolutely it does it yeah yeah, we're, we're always astounded at what did well back in the day, as opposed to what people watch again. Will watch again now. Yeah, yeah. You know what? yeah I, it's. I, I really, really liked um, Jonah, you know, the little kid in this one. And can we say how good Gabby Hoffman was in the late '80s, early '90s? Considering that, yeah. Considering how, like, I don't want to say bizarre because it may, it shortchanges her because she's still quite a good actress. To see her do this, and then you know, now as an adult, she was um, she was on the show Winning Time, uh, playing a complete. You would have never guessed that's the kid from Sleep uh, Sleepless in Seattle. But yeah, I mean, Feel the Dreams, Uncle Buck, Sleepless in Seattle. She had a ring of like, for for as young as she was, she has a ring of really big hits. Yeah, so. I think this is, this is quite quite the sweet movie. I, I haven't watched it in forever either, but yeah, you know, usually because our go to when we want to watch a rom com, we always go back to when Harry met Sally. You know, mm-hmm. doing my white yeah, man's overbite. I've never oh, seen this. Really? One. Okay. No, nope. it's cute. It really is cute because it's like when I'm in the mood for a rom com, it's going to be this, <laughs> or it's, it's not going to be this. It's going to be when Harry met Sally. Right, yeah. right, and but it's it, it's good if you need that break. And, yeah, and what's also really like, odd, what's really odd about it is the fact that 
Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks like have maybe two scenes together in in the whole thing. Yeah, at most, like you, you let less they spend less than five minutes on screen together. Right, but they have they really have good chemistry together, even though they they don't share the screen together a lot. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get on to another. Number four, we are almost there, folks. $158.3 million, and that is The Firm. The lawyers at your firm sure seem accident-prone. Four dead lawyers out of 41 in less than 10 years. I think you've got a serious problem. Paramount Pictures presents Tom Cruise. They can get to anyone, anywhere. In the motion picture suspense thriller of the year. What are you doing here? If we run, they find us. Based on the number one bestseller. Your life as you know it is over. The Firm. How did this movie make that much money? Honestly, it is a Paramount film that has Tom uh, Cruise in it. Yep. Tom, I I swear that he's got pictures of Paramount. He just has pictures of of the, the entire <laughs> studio in a compromising position because there's no way that any any studio would be this loyal to one man. Yeah. This is why we didn't this is why Dungeons and Dragons didn't do well this year because they put all their their oomph into uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah, the only the only people that have ever been uh, more important to Paramount than Tom Cruise are the South Park guys. Yeah, because when oh, yeah. Tom God. when Tom Cruise went after uh, went to Paramount to pull uh, South Park because of their parody of him, they're like, uh, "No, yeah. they make they make a lot more money than you do." Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, they could they could generate more in, in a shorter period of time. Um, again, am I'm assuming that this this movie was not a big deal in the UK that you remember from thirty years ago as a child. Uh. It's it's no Super Mario Brothers, is it? <laughs> uh, this is going to be my standard response now. Um, <laughs> I, no, I again. This is another John Grisham, I think. Am I am I correct? It is. In, it is. It being it's, John, it's Grisham John Grisham adaptation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this this is not a thing, as far as I'm aware. This was not right. a thing at all. So this was the book I that brought him to prominence. This is the book that that brought him to international prominence. This is his second book. A Time to Kill was his first book. This was his second book. And this I, I read this book. It's again, it's not well written. Um it's, it's written just, by it's, a lawyer. What do you expect? Exactly. Yeah. It, it it's like you know, we, we joked about like Tom Clancy and how Tom Clancy writes books that are essentially nothing more than like submarine manuals. Um to, it, John Clancy, you know, Clancy is writing from the aspect of someone who just did the, you know, just passed the bar. Oh, um, uh, John Grisham. John Grisham, yeah. Uh, yeah, he writes like, yeah, he writes legal briefs is basically what it is. This is a one long 300 page legal brief. Yep. And the only thing that really stands out about this movie is it's Dave Grusin score, which was nominated for an Oscar. And the score is primarily piano which kind of is interesting for how that works, but that's just kind of like a minor a point to this movie that I watched in the theater and then promptly never watched it again. <laughs> no, I mean, this this movie is probably a crime against humanity because of all the douchebags that went to Harvard Law after after watching it. 
god. <laughs> Mike, you're, you've, you've remained quiet on this. I'm assuming you haven't seen this one. Nope. Like I said, the only okay. Christian movie I've ever seen is Client. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we'll you got to wait another year. year for that one. Yep. So, all right. Well, moving on then, because we obviously have nothing to say. God, we've got to the top three. We actually have stuff we can talk about here. All right. Taking in 183 well, points. I'm sorry, Catherine. No, I mean I was going to say these are actually good movies, though. They yeah. are. They are. This we're like we're providing our capital for this. So 183.8 million dollars. A movie that t- Steve says if you haven't memorized the speech from The Fugitive that won Tommy Lee Jones the Oscar, you're not a man. That's right. It's The Fugitive. <laughs> Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. You're suggesting that I killed my wife. How dare you? When I came home, there was a man in my house. I fought with this man. He had a mechanical arm. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. Go get him. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. But two patrol cars on that bridge down there, four patrolmen have them blast this river. Damn, what are you out of your mind? He's dead! I ought to make him easy to catch. Oh, and uh, by the way, I did promise uh, our friend Kurt Smith at Swayze of Arabia that I would say it like this. Provasic. Also, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could have Provasic. Um, this is a ridiculously good movie. movie. You know, it's, fun, it's funny is... for for a movie that has Harrison Ford. It's Tommy. You know th- that Harrison Ford is the headliner on. It's Tommy Lee Jones's movie for all intents and oh, purposes. Yeah. Oh, this is his yeah. movie. Yeah, I think Tommy Lee Jones made the movie what it was. And their scenes, to, their scenes together, though few, are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have. He was the only allowed note I took... an awful lot of improv. On this movie, the only yeah, note, like, note he was allowed. Yeah, I it believe just I, is. I believe was that uh, like, I don't care was improv. It was. Yes. Yeah. Well, the in-house, out-house, stockhouse line was also improv. They improved it once. They liked what they saw, so they 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 rolled the cameras a second time. They let all the extras, all of his federal agents, they let them kind of like do their own thing because there is a, the one of the podcasts I listened to, it was a shit show. Does a whole thing about the fugitive. And there is a lot of detail behind how fast they needed to get this movie going. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely, it's, it's very interesting. Well, I, I do know that the infamous train scene, that was a one take. I mean, you, you could not do that one again. This is real acid, folk people. So put on those goggles. <laughs> acid. <laughs> the goggles—they do nothing. Um, <laughs> and what are your thoughts on the fugitive? Because I know you've seen this one, right? No. <laughs> so. Oh I've, no. I've seen it. Um, yeah. But it was a long time ago, and I don't think I've seen all of it. I think I've seen most of it. 
because my memory of it is very hazy. Now, I've got a terrible memory anyway from, you know, most of my life. Um, <laughs> so you can't really trust my memory on most things. But I know that I have seen bits of this movie because, you know, like when you see like clips, like when when yeah. he's in the um, tunnels. Um, so I, I, I know that I've seen this movie, but I, I'm, I don't think I've seen all of it. Reading like the synopsis, like, you know, the description on like Wikipedia, I'm like, I, I know I've seen this bit, but I don't think I've seen this bit. So, but it sounds like Derek see, went after the Midnight Mets when we did The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, Derek is watching The Exorcist, like thinking like, oh man, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And he was watching it and he's like, I don't remember this. I don't remember that scene either. Oh my God, I've never seen this movie before. <laughs> <laughs> he, completely, he completely misremembered a different movie. Oh, it was it was glorious to be able to, to give him the excuse to finally watch it. But yeah, it's I, I just went on. I just went to see if this is streaming anywhere. It is not. Oh, no, I have it on Blu-ray. So I watched it. What? For homework. Cr- uh, nice. Nice. This is a great, great movie. It's kind of a shame, too. It is, this is one I think warrants a, a rewatch. It's so tense. Mm. And again, it's it, Tommy Lee Jones. It's just the, the drive that he has is so good. It's so, it's just, it feels real. Yeah. And I'd seen him in other movies before, but this was like, this kind of solidified the Tommy Lee Jones character. Because if you yeah. want a Tommy Lee Jones, you know, performance, this is what you point to. I, I think his perf- the, the his entire character can be summed up when he's, when he's, uh, after he's like shot that guy, um, and, he, you know, who was holding his, his agent hostage. Mm-hmm. And then he's talking to his agent afterwards, and he says, whispers, I don't bargain. That yeah. pretty yes. much sums up this, his entire... I've, I've, yeah, I've lost all hearing in this ear. Okay, really? And he whispers in that ear, and the guy <laughs> hears it, and it's like, yeah. 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 And I, I, to this day, I will always wince when Joey Pants gets t- taken out at the end. Yeah. He gets, like, smacked in the head face with an eye, like an eye beam. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. God, oh yeah, I forgot he's in this movie. God, I watch this movie again. <laughs> Show it to people. God, I love this movie. It's such a great movie. It is. It is. M, go back, find it. See if it's streaming in the UK. You need to watch this movie again. Actually, this would make a great verbal diorama episode, yeah. if I may say. Uh, absolutely. Your head yeah. will explode from how much went into making this movie in such a short period of time. I'm actually just having a look to see if it's uh, if yeah. it is available anywhere here because I I genuinely would like to watch it again. Um, I'll hold on my. I've had to I had to switch my keyboard off because I don't know if you heard Evie she was uh, sniffing oh. around so uh, the few yeah I'm amazed my cats haven't She's been like now. you know just like getting like so... headfirst into my microphone. Yeah, that's what Evie was doing just now. So apologies if you heard any snuffling. EV noise. Um, so you can cat. rent it over here. Uh-huh. Um, it's available to rent on like Amazon, Sky, uh-huh. Apple TV. So I could rent it if I wanted to, or I could probably find a cheap DVD somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I might just go to the library so and get it because 
It's so good. It's such a crime. We can't stream that right now. So, all right, we're down to the bottom two here. Um, a movie that took in $219.1 million. Now, Jonna brought up this, but Steve also brings up on this subject. I just realized you couldn't make Mrs. Doubtfire today because butthurt incels would be swatting Robin Williams and bombing theaters. Ben Shapiro would be accusing every parent who brought their kids of seeing it as a groomer, and the Republican primary debate would just be Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis arguing who banned it in their state first. <laughs> <laughs> His marriage is ending. My marriage is not ending. It's just on hiatus. To put his family back together, Daniel Hillard needed a job. Do you have any special skills? I do voices. Yes! Nancy and I are still looking for the other half of my head. Look at me right now, Moneypenny. I want to undo that bow and get to know you. Mr. Hillard, do you consider yourself humorous? I used to. And a decent home for his kids. How do you like it? Can't you just tell Mom you're sorry? But he found a way. I'm placing an ad for a housekeeper. Housekeeper? Could you make me a woman? To have both. Wow. Let's pray. Hello? Euphigenia Doubtfire. Seriously. This movie is the number two movie. It it took in it took in substantially more than the number three movie of the year. Um, and it's about a guy who dresses in drag to, to spend time with his kids. <laughs> yeah, that also doesn't age well. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen this movie in forever, because it's it's not Robin Williams, it's Chris Columbus. I have a lot of issues with the way Chris Columbus directs movies. <laughs> just, just overall just style. It's me, it's the film nerd in me doing this, uh, but I know this movie is beloved. Um. Go ahead. I know you love this movie. This is better than Super Mario Brothers, correct? <laughs> well, I mean, it's no Super Mario Brothers, is it? No, I'm joking. Um, so, again, it's like this period in time was one of those periods in time where I watched a lot of movies as a kid. And it's like Mrs. Doubtfire is one of those perennial movies that just fills me with so much nostalgia and warmth and and it's probably mostly to do with Robin Williams because I I've been always very vocal in the past about how much I love Robin Williams and how much he meant to me personally um how much his performances have always meant to me and you know yes you can look at it in the modern with a modern lens now and say it doesn't really hold up however it's just such a heartfelt and wonderful movie. And it's genuinely very funny. Like there are parts of the movie that still make me laugh out loud. And I've seen it so many times and I still laugh. Um, and one of the things I actually really like about this movie is I feel like Hollywood in particular kind of has this trope of, oh, well, you know, everything will be all OK at the end. And mummy and daddy will get back together and everyone loves each other. And what I really like about this movie is that doesn't happen. Like, they're like, no, we can't be together. We don't work as a husband and wife. It's better for us if we separate. It's better for the kids, you know. Let And it's just like telling kind of kids that do come from parents who are divorced that, you know what, it's OK, because you're better off being happy separately than you are being miserable together. 
And yeah. that's kind of, I mean, my parents have always been married, but I kind of always took that because as, as a really positive message of this movie that it's okay if your mum and dad are divorced. They still love yeah. you as as the child and it's it's okay you know it's not okay that you know that the dad in this situation obviously felt like he had no other choice you know that's that's not okay but ultimately it ends on the happiest possible note that it can which is it's okay to be divorced and it's okay to live separately and you will still love your children regardless and the, for, for a Hollywood comedy about a family, you know, I think it's a little a little bit out there in that regard, because I think any other movie would just be like, oh, yeah, let's just bring them back together at the end and everyone lives happily ever after. Um, I like that this movie doesn't do that. Um, but mostly I, I, I love it because of Robin Williams and even Sally Field. You know, I think Sally Field is very underrated in this movie. Pierce Brosnan. I think the scenes between... Robin Williams and Pierce Brosnan are brilliant because Pierce Brosnan is the straight man and Robin Williams is just this kind of goofy Scottish nanny. And don't even get me to do a Scottish accent because I cannot. That is still really impressive to me. The fact that Robin Williams can do that uh, and kind of, you know, bring that character to life because she does. Mrs. Doubtfire does feel like a real person. It's it's a bit like, you know, like when you've got puppet work in a movie and the puppet feels real. Mrs. Doubtfire feels like a genuinely real, wholly formed person. And that's down to Robin Williams and just the stuff that he can do. Um, but I I have so much love for this movie. And this movie will be an episode at some point because it just will. Um, just because? It's uh, I, I, I think it's really special. Just 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 because. Um, yeah, yes. I think this movie's really special and I think it it, des- it deserves to be in the top 10. Absolutely it does. Um I did find that the end was surprising to me. Uh, mainly because yeah, they don't get back together. They're better off apart. And the fact that this is how he's able to work is by create now, now making the character into a a TV like a children's uh you know children's show host. I thought I thought that was a really great way of ending the movie, um, and it's but the, I mean this movie all Mrs. Doubtfire all the time, which which makes sense too because I mean Mara Wilson is charming because Mara Wilson is always a charming little kid. Um, whichever Lawrence that was, on the other hand, was just kind of like okay, we have our angry, our angry boy. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts, folks, on Mrs. Doubtfire? It has no. been. A very, very long while since I've seen this one. I barely remember it, but I really, really liked Harvey Firestein. Yeah. He was so good. It's just like, just a good friend to Rob Williams' character. Yeah. Well, he was his brother, right? Uh, Yes, yes, you're right. Yeah, sorry. Like I said, it's been a very long yeah. time. Yeah. And that was actually kind of interesting, especially in the early 90s, that... Um, you know, he refers to, you know, Uncle oh God, now I have to look it up. Uh, you know, Uncle Harvey and Aunt uh whatever his partner's name is, and that it's like the kids are already aware that, you know, hey, I have a gay uncle and he's you know, he's got a partner and that's all cool and there's nothing we just leave it at that. There are no jokes at anybody's expense. 
hmm. about that. It's it's handled. I think the overall transitioning of you know the makeup job and everything. I thought it was it, it was played very very well. Um, and we'll see this going forward in what I think is one of Rob Williams' best movies. You know, in three years from now when we talk about the Birdcage. But yeah. <laughs> and other thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire before we uh, will we go big and then go home. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. So, yeah. All right. I'm going to start with what Steve has to say. This is thank you, Steve, by the way, for all of your feedback here. Okay. Let's address the Brachiosaurus in the room. The very technology <laughs> that created the G Wiz factor for Jurassic Park is now so polished, it's destroyed the G Wiz factor forever. You need to see special effects is over. It only took about a century, but we've solved special effects. That's it. We're done. Your movie has to be good now. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. <laughs> and that is Jurassic Park, which took in $357 million. That is more than $130 million more than the number two movie. Um. I do actually have the worldwide gross for that one right here. What is oh, the yeah, worldwide gross for Jurassic uh, Park? Well, I've actually got two numbers here. I'm not sure if one is at the time and one is the you know current at with releases. Yep. But um, at the time, at least the worldwide gross uh, box office was nine hundred fourteen million six hundred ninety one thousand one hundred twenty dollars. So just yep. shy of a bill. Yeah, exactly. And that, by the way, that those are unadjusted numbers. Those are the those are nineteen ninety three numbers. All right, because yeah, because I, I pull up, I saw another number of, of uh, one point oh five seven billion. Yeah, I that's. Know. I think that's the adjusted. Okay. So. Or it, yeah, or you know what? That also might include the re release. Yeah. They re released it in three day. But the budget um, at the time was sixty three million, so it's made a bit of a money. It's made its money back, I would I would assume. Yeah. Um Oh boy. So M, I know you did a full you did a birthday episode on Jurassic Park. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh do you do you just want me to go into it? I, you know what? Start. I mean you know. Okay. <laughs> Start. Okay, okay. So I think every you know, people who listen to the podcast know, okay. I love animation. That's like one thing that I love. The other thing that I love is practical effects work. Um, and, you know, CG, I'm not opposed to CG at all, but I am a huge practical effects nerd. And Jurassic Park is was a birthday episode because it is specifically very special to me 
because this was the first movie that I actually saw at the cinema hmm. with my grandparents. Oh. And my grandparents didn't really think like what they were taking my brother and me to see. Bear in mind as well that I live in a very small town. We didn't have a cinema back then in our small town. So the local theatre would occasionally put movies on, but they would be like well after the movie had actually been out in the in the you know in actual cinemas. So this wasn't I didn't see this in 1993. I would have seen this later because we didn't have but we had to basically travel to the nearest city to go to the cinema. So uh so my grandparents, bless them, uh they didn't realize what they were taking us to see me and my brother. Um but it it was formative for me. This this movie created my love of movies because I watched this movie. I was petrified of this movie, but I was so <laughs> awestruck by this movie because seeing a dinosaur on screen that wasn't animated, like a real dinosaur was, it was one of those things like kids these days, they're like, oh yeah, we've seen Jurassic World, you know, and all the sequels and it's all cool. Yeah, dinosaurs, whatever. But you had to be there. You know, you had to be there in the cinema to see what this was and what this meant. Um, and this 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 movie means so much to me on a practical effects level. I I can't even the amount of crap that Spielberg went through to make this movie. Like I salute him <laughs> because he made yeah. Jaws and he was like, Jaws was terrible. I'm, why would I make a monster movie again? And then he was like, Do you know what? I'm going to make another monster movie and the production is <laughs> going to be hell. And he did it anyway. And I'm like, Spielberg, bloody love you. Like, only <laughs> Spielberg could do this. And not only do, I'm sorry, I'm going to wax lyrical now. Not only do that, but make a really genuinely incredible movie with incredible characters. And obviously the story is Michael Crichton. So, you know, you have to give credit to Crichton, even though it's not quite the same. Um, but, you know, the cast, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum. Richard Attenborough, Samuel L. Jackson, um, the, the, the ethics of it all, the implications of genetic engineering, the reliance on technology, the fact that we have strong female leads, quote unquote, in this movie without it going, oh, look, here's Laura Dern. She's a strong female lead. You know, she's smart. She's practical. She gets shit done. You know, she's tenacious. This, this is th there is. There is no fat to trim in this movie. This movie is, I'm going to say, and I, I feel like you will all agree, I feel like this movie is perfect. There is nothing, yep. there is nothing wrong with this movie. This movie is blockbuster cinema, perfectly from, packaged and delivered. From a technical, from a, te from a technical this, standpoint, this, this, this movie this was This is perfect. better than Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for, I, I mean... From a technical standpoint, I mean, just from a movie making, the actual work of putting a movie together and making it all put fit, it's near perfection. I remember, it's funny because I didn't watch this movie in the theaters. I I saw it on VHS a few when it came out on VHS a few months later when I was up at school. And the thing to remember is this was around the time that home theater systems were starting to become a thing okay so people were were doing like a fully integrated you know you're we're doing like fully integrated it's like okay you got the big screen tv which was 
back in those days was a giant projection. I don't know how my buddy got that into his room. Um, <laughs> but it was a you know a projector screen TV with early surround sound system. It you know it wasn't truly surround. It's just like you put a bunch of speakers around the room, you know, and 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 let the stereo uh, sort it out. But the sound design and just the way it immersed you in into that you you're like i mean yeah looking back on it now you you think oh yeah that you know that's a cgi dinosaur but when you when that first scene when laura dern and sam neil look and see the brachiosaur you're like wow how did they pull that off i wish that was like hell that that my kids could have experienced that on the big screen that that scene just that scene alone. But even then, they didn't, you know, grow up where like the only dinosaurs you saw were badly animated or, you know, like stop motion <laughs> and it was dark and rainy. Baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Baby Secret of the Lost Legend and stuff like that, you know. So <laughs> like that was that was our first, you know, like like M said, that was our first dinosaur and it was just yeah. the the first time you really see a dinosaur, it's bright clear sunny day and it's just there and huge it's not like partially hidden in the trees even it's just fully visible and they they went for it and the the, the yeah. amount of technology that they invented in order to do some of the scenes like running with the gallimimus is uh was incredible because that was all oh, stuff I, that they invented for that movie oh ilm just they rewrote visual effects history with that with that they they rewrote mm-hmm. all the rules of visual effects with that movie. Yep. But, but also yeah, like it's... you know full full credit to Stan Winston for like you know realizing that yeah if he didn't find a way to work in some physical some practical effects into this he'd be out of a job so he actually worked very intimately with in uh, ILM to achieve this movie. Well, you know what? The, well, that's the great thing about it and I think that's a lesson that a lot of modern modern filmmakers need to learn is like know when to you you know know where cgi is appropriate and where physical where practical effects is more you know the better thing to do because i think right now it's just a lot of people a lot of filmmakers have lost sight of that balance right and you're seeing you're seeing that real um lowering of the quality in special effects because I saw I, you yeah. know, the other day, I, I was watching this trailer for some stupid Kevin Hart movie <laughs> that looks like it's very visual effects um, heavy, and it looks so bad. Like it looks yeah. obviously bad. And you're thinking to yourself, and, and I know these visual effects artists are working; they're they're getting worked to the bone and stuff like that. And you know, thankfully, they're they're unionizing and stuff like that. But. Mm-hmm. What's being accepted as for as passable for visual effects is just is so bad, and I think that's one of the reasons why yeah. why superhero movies right now are kind of on their way out because people are just kind of like there's no more wonder to it. Well, there's no more wow factor in it. Um, I heard it. I heard it put once that CG has now become like stop motion animation where. When you know it, when you know that it is, you see it. That you, you can't help but yeah, see it young, like that. Yeah, it's young. Ken, it's young Kenny Valley. You know yeah. when something's CG now. Yeah. But whereas the, I mean the, the 
Go ahead. Whereas with Jurassic, we're at Jurassic Park. Yeah, like I said, with a th- benefit of 30 years hindsight, we know it's CG. But at the time, it was so well done. That it, 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 it still holds up incredibly well. Even with oh, high definition. Yeah. Even with, uh, with high depth, mm-hmm. um, uh-uh. I, I okay. watched I watched it I watched it on my DVD, uh, and on my on my big high definition television, and the CGI hasn't aged as well as the practical effects have. You can kind of see a little bit of the the blue screeniness of it. I can I can but see it was, that. It's definitely natural though when you're talking about like thirty year effects, right? Um, right. Because practical will never age. It's like you can you can still watch the thing and you can still be wowed by the practical effects in the thing. And that's 40 years old. And, and those are practical those effects, effects will are never jank age. as hell. And that's yeah. and that's I know, but it's just like because they're tangible, because there's something actually there, like they feel real. And I feel like um a lot of a lot of people will hold up Jurassic Park as being, oh, this is the advent of CG. There is so there's no, remarkably there's only, there's, little CG work in this movie. Th- People think like there's less more than, than there is. Um, yeah, there's there's very very little CG work in this movie. I mean, the, you know, the the raptors in this movie were going to be stop motion once upon a time, and it was only like remarkable twist of fate that meant that ILM actually stepped in and and you know made them CG. Um, but while I think that this movie should be lauded as being you know a miraculous turn for cg because it really genuinely is the reason this movie does hold up is nothing to do with the cg at all it's Mm -hmm. it is to do with the practical effects um and you know i just feel like anyone who you you can pick apart this movie you can take a, a toothpick to it and be like well you know this isn't quite right that's not quite right you can pull at those threads the, there are certain scenes that I that don't look particularly great, but you know it's thirty years old, and I think it yeah. deserves for us to give it a bit of leeway just because of how absolutely spectacular the movie actually is. I, but you, you know, know, but I, you know what, I, you know what, M, that you bring, you bring up a great point. It is a masterpiece. M, you bring you bring up a point, great point in that. Yeah, we're picking the movie apart after thirty years, right? Modern blockbusters, we're picking apart. You know, it's like, I mean, because it becomes so obvious nowadays that, yeah, go ahead, Mike. I, I think if you want, like, one scene in particular that just exemplifies how fantastic the practical effects were, the the Triceratops scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. I mean, yeah. that is, uh, you know, for, uh, for the cast and crew right there, that was a living, breathing Triceratops right there. Yeah. I think also it's it's a perfect and you can blend. see the wonder you can see it yeah 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 I think I think there's a perfect blend of the, the 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 virtual effects the practical effects and you know to Joe's point too that sound the sound oh. effects editing in it is fantastic and all of that creates that immersive experience I think the editing is great on here um M I will have to dispute one thing about this making it a perfect movie the script fifty. Five percent of the time, the dialogue is really cringy. It's 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 like the actors have to get over, you know, <laughs> have to like overcome some of that. It's it again. It has nothing to do with the overall wow factor of this movie, but oh my god, some of this dialogue is so 
that's why like i will i will I, the hill i will die on in terms of 90s blockbusters is that men in black might be the most perfect of all big budget fantasy movies because of the 90s because it it also has a, a, a good script but that's that's just my little thing about it i i cannot pick apart these these visual effects i can't pick apart how well cast this movie is uh, especially mm-hmm. jeff goldblum oh my god seriously Jeff, uh, uh, for me though, for me the standout is Sir Richard Attenborough. He, he gives Hammond such a just a, such a tragic, um, like the, the whole scene, the whole like the uh, dialogue scene between him and um, Ellie, um, yeah, when they're eating the ice cream, like when she's just like saying like you never had the never had the control that you thought you did. It just, it just, in the whole flea circus thing, it's just such a tragic scene, and I love his take on it. It's just so fantastic. Yeah, well, considering too, I mean that that whole thing, you could, you couldn't have read the book and said, okay, I have to play him like this, and then be handed the script and going, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing with Spielberg's, like especially you know, we think of Jaws and we think of this. God, these movies are so much better than the books. Oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I was gonna oh say with the God. dialogue, yeah. I'm like, there's only so much you can do starting with, with Crichton. Uh, yeah, that's true. I remember that's watching why, a hacker. <laughs> that's why virtually when, when all I, the uh, dialogue from uh, Jaws is pretty much straight from the uh, scriptwriters, not from Peter Benchley. Yeah. But I was I was yeah, I remember watching this in theaters and watching like when the Tyrannosaurus is attacking the car that the kids are in and crashes through the, the roof. And I started to worry for a second, and then I'm like it's a Spielberg movie. The kids are going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I calmed down. Wait, 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 wait. You've seen Jaws, right? Yeah, yeah but it wasn't going to be. Yeah, it wasn't that kind of. You know, Jaws is what R? No. No. PG. No. Jaws is PG. Is PG. It's seventies PG, but it's still PG. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, but. All right. Well, I think we, we've we've said quite a bit about Jurassic Park, and I know M. It is probably getting super late for you in the UK, so I think we need to to say our farewells. But I do. I, I had a great time talking about this, especially the top three here, because my God, this top yeah. ten, the hell. So that, that that top ten was rough. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's very rough. So, well, M. Thank you. Oh, so much for joining us again. I'm so happy to have you back live this time for this. Oh, I'm so happy to be back live for this. Uh, It's been, uh, as always, a genuine joy and honour to be on Geek Salad and talk to you guys about these movies, most of which I haven't seen. But, you know, it's a bit (laughs) of a rubbish top ten, isn't it? Let's be honest. It should have been Super Mario Brothers, Adam's Family Values. You know, where were they in the top ten? Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a genuine joy. It is getting a little bit late here now. We're coming up to about half 10 in the evening. So, um, but yeah, it, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been wonderful. And I look forward to the films of 1994. I can't wait. That is one of my favorite years of cinema before we let you go. Um, you want to plug your pluggables? Sure. So, yeah, um, if anyone is interested in the making of movies, I guess, then um, you should listen to Verbal Diorama because I am a film history podcast. And uh, and I do have an episode on Jurassic Park, as Andy mentioned, um, which goes into the making of Jurassic Park. 
uh, which, as I said, is one of my favourite movies of all time. So, um, but yeah, if you want to find me, you can do. You can find Verbal Diorama wherever you find Geek Salad on your podcast app of choice. Um, or if you want to chat to me about movies, then you can. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter because it's still Twitter. Uh, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, Threads, Blue Sky. Basically, all of the imitations that have come out recently, I am at Verbal Diorama on them. So come <laughs> find me and um, and thank you all again for having me. It has been our pleasure to have you. Um, thank you so much. I can't wait to have another conversation with you soon about something. If you ever bring me back on, it's got to be movie in 1999 because it's all we ever talk about. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and folks... <laughs> If you want any more of this uh, Geek Salad goodness, you know where to find us. We're at all the same places that M is at in terms of your podcasts. We also have our YouTube channel, Geek Salad Podcast, where you can check out Mike and Mike Weekly Retro Reviews. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook at Geek Salad Podcast and at, at Geek Salad Radio on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Threads. And next episode, as we're kind of doing the one a month until Andy's done with his theater thing, uh, we are doing a Christmas episode. We are still kind of in committee as to what we're doing, but it will be a fun episode nonetheless because it's our annual Christmas episode, and they're always fun. So yeah. with that said, let's let M go to bed. God, I've rhymed a lot without even in intending that. <laughs> uh, so anyway, until next time, I'm Andy. I'm Mike. I'm Joe. I'm Catherine. Go forth. And be nerdful. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Am. Thank you, Am. is just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks had delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. Yeah, nothing. yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists.